Welcome to the Fish House Nation podcast presented by Catch Cover, your home for ice fishing news, tips, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Chris Larson. Hello and welcome to the Fish House Nation podcast. Today is the second part of our bourbon series. We're talking with Rick Bruzowitz for the Minnesota DNR. He is the Aitken Area Fisheries Supervisor. Rick, welcome to the Fish House Nation. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Glad to be here. Rick, we're talking burbot today, and you've described it a few different times to me as your favorite fish. Why is burbot your favorite fish? Uh, they're just cool in general. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in an area where they're, we, we call them lawyers, actually, and uh, in central Wisconsin. And uh, ultimately, at one point, I, I, I had heard of them. I had seen some pictures, never really had caught one before. And uh, one day, my, uh, one of my professors asked me if I was interested in a graduate position working on Burbot on Green Bay and Lake Michigan. How could I refuse? It was just awesome. And ever since then, you know, whether it's the biology of the creature, what they look like, because if you've, if you've not seen them close up, they're actually really pretty cool. And the fact that they're the only freshwater codfish in the in the in the world, um, that's that's pretty awesome too. And they're circumpolar. So you know, whether it's here or in, in Europe or or northern Asia or or wherever, I mean there's bourbon. And and they they inhabit a really wide range of habitats. I mean, from the deepest, darkest, you know, depths of, of Lake Superior to shallow warm water streams, uh, you know, connected to the Mississippi and the Mississippi, even up by me. So yeah, they're, they're a pretty cool fish. And they've got a lot of names. You, you said that uh, you call them lawyer when, when you were young. I've seen them called Ling. I've, you know, obviously a lot of people call them eel pout. What's with the name? How come they right. have different names? Uh, it, it, and it's a colloquial thing. It all depends on where you're from. So we grew up calling them that. Uh, I, I think one of the Native American, uh, the, the Ojibwe name for them is Misai. Um, uh, Ling, Pout, Eel Pout. Uh, 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 gosh, I can't, I, I used to know the German name for them and I, I'm ashamed I don't because my mother translated a German manuscript for me once. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so I just don't remember it off the top of my head. But it, and it's because they come from all over. And, uh, and, and that's where they gain these common names. Scientific name for it is the same all over, and that's Loda Loda. So uh, that's, uh, that's where, we, where we are. <laughs> and they're, like you said, they're, they're a super cool fish. It's really, this is a fish that was really thought of as kind of a junk fish not too long ago. And now there's really a lot of interest in them. People are very interested in going fishing for them and and just, I think, doing what you said, getting a, a good look at them, because there's still a lot of ice anglers who have never caught one before. But there's, like I said, there's, there's a ton of interest. You see it all the time online. People talking about how to go catch them. What do you think is behind the resurgence in the interest of bourbon fishing? Well, a combination of things. Uh, I would say um, the, the, the interest around here was minimal, right? Walleye's king, right? Well, pretty soon... Uh, you know, little influence from Wisconsin and perch are really popular. And, uh, you know, Western states and Alaska burbot are, are extremely popular. So I think it's just a matter of, of bringing all that together and that, you know, we're, we're finally catching up to, to the idea that they're kind of a cool fish. They're fun to catch. 
they bite, you know, in a similar manner to, to, to walleye, if you will. You can catch them in a similar way. Um, you do catch them while walleye fishing on a regular basis. You used to catch them a lot more from places, you know, like Mille Lacs, for instance. Um, not so many anymore. But uh, uh, nonetheless, I mean, it's uh, once you once you get into it, once you get past the part that when you grab the fish, it might wrap its tail around your your wrist. You know, at that point in time, I think people are uh, are, are you know, once they get past that, they're good with uh, catching these guys, and they actually taste good. So, uh, you know, some people have probably heard of poor man's lobster and. And that's a, a common way of fixing them. Basically, they boil them and then dip them in, in melted butter, just like a lobster. On the other hand, my favorite way of having a bourbon is, is fresh fried. So it's a big, you know, thick, white, juicy meat. And so, uh, you know, it's an awesome, it's an awesome fish. What can I say? Well, you just talked about how, how they, they eat, how they are on the plate. Can you tell us a little bit about how they live, especially in the Minnesota area? I know they live in different different ways in different uh, um, you know habitat. But when we think of places where we'd catch fish in Minnesota, how what is their general life like? What are they what are they doing out there? Yeah, that's a really good question because they are completely different than most other other species. Um, and I say that because uh, they are a cold water species that has very limited activity, metabolic activity in the summertime. Their, their metabolism actually goes up so much in the summer that they can't gain weight, if you will, by feeding because they're using too much energy with that feeding uh, behavior. And so they don't feed much, which is one of the reasons, even in these lakes that, that you know used to have them, you'd rarely hear about people catching fish in the summer. Few in the spring maybe and fall maybe, but, but rarely, rarely in the summer, as opposed to everything else that's, you know, feeding heavily throughout the open water period. These guys spawn under the ice in late winter. And, uh, uh, and so their, their primary time for, for building that egg mass and building their, their, their body stores up is fall through then. And then once they spawn, now it's a time to pick up all their, their energy for the remainder of the year and that they do through spring. Um, so they like that cold water. That's, you know, they're a cod. And when you think about cod, you think North Sea, Alaska, all that kind of stuff. And that's what these guys are. Um, now, interestingly, they can still survive in warmer climes as long as they have the food and shelter and, and a little bit of refuge that they can get away, which is why you see them still in these uh, you know, tributary streams to the Mississippi and, and some other small waters. But those aren't the ones people really probably want to fish because they, they often just, you know, grow to a max of about 10 or 12 inches. And uh, as opposed to the ones in the big waters, which might get to three feet. So. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, let's say we've got a burbot that's in, uh, let's say, Leech Lake or Mille Lacs or something like that. How, how long do they live and how fast do they grow? How long will it take to get, let's say, a, a, a burbot to 20 inches? Okay, so in the old days <laughs> on Mille Lacs, when we actually sampled numbers, we, we did some aging. And uh, off the top of my head, I would say, um, you know, 20 inches might be four, five, six, eight years old, 10 years old. That's one thing with them is that they, they overlap in size. They don't all grow exactly the same. Um, there's a lot of overlap in, in ages and sizes. 
Um, in in better waters, um, I would I would say that you we're we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood for twenty inches. Oh, I bet you in the Great Lakes we see that in in four years maybe. I'd have to look at my old charts because I haven't looked at them recently, but that would be my guess. Um, and in little lakes around here, it would be it would be a lot less. Uh, 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 it would take them much longer to to get that big. I think the the oldest one that that as far as how old they get, the oldest one that I saw on the Great Lakes was like 19 years old. Um, but uh, I don't think. Uh, you know, at Mille Lacs, I bet you we didn't see much over, you know, six or eight years old when we were actually looking at them. Um, it, it varies, like I said, from, from one, one niche to another, um, it can vary tremendously. So you talked about um, the fish really don't feed in the summertime. For those folks who are out there and they're interested in, in chasing some burbot and getting their hands on one, when is the best time to go fishing for burbot? All right, so, and, and my burbot fishing experience is limited, to be honest with you, to fishing uh, uh, Mille Lacs in the old days and fishing uh, uh, the Great Lakes. Um, now, Mille Lacs was something where early ice was just an awesome time to catch burbot. It really was. You'd go out early ice, um, you know, walking out only type of stuff. And, uh, and, and that would be a really, really good time. Um, then the, the catch rates for, for Mille Lacs, if I remember right, they stood, they would spawn in, I want to say it was late January, early February. And at that point in time, the catch rates actually dropped off. And I think that that was probably mainly because fishermen were moving offshore at the same time, Berber were moving inshore to spawn. And so they, they, they just weren't in the same areas uh, to, 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 to catch them. Um, I remember talking to one Black's band member once that, that mentioned that they would, they would uh, go into the lake to, to spear burbot. They'd cut a hole, you know, rough fish, you could do it anytime. So this is even in the old, old days. And they would uh, jingle their tines of the spear on the rocks to attract the burbot in. And then they, they were able to take them. And that was when the squirrels play in February or March. So I uh, think uh, late in the season. Um, I think uh, uh, a lot of lakes in, in the area, that late winter type time period is, is a common time for, for anglers to start chasing them. I know a few that have done that recently and in the area. Um, uh, so, but you know, that early ice was always uh, my favorite time to catch them. Uh, so you brought up a little bit there, uh, you said rough fish, and that's really gets down to the conversation that we're having today and why we're having it. And Minnesota is is proposing uh, a bag limit on burbot. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I think the the uh, and and I keep on referring to the old days, and and I'm not sure if you noticed, but you know my beard is a little bit lighter than it once used to be. Um, but in the old days. Burbot were trash fish to people. They would they would catch them and leave them on the ice, which wasn't really good for the burbot. You know, maybe good for the eagles was was about it. Um, and then burbot started going down, not necessarily because of harvest, but I think 
I think we've got some trends in, in climate and, and temperatures that, that really make it more difficult in some waters. And, uh, uh, and, and so now they were, they were catching fewer of these things. Um, and now they've become a little bit more popular. So now there's a lot more interest in them. But they're such that they're, you know, in a trophic level that's really similar to, to bass and walleye, uh, that, that having them being a rough fish uh, just didn't seem right. I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's an awesome fish, it's a predator. Um, they, they, you know, deserve to exist just like any other fish. But, uh, but the problem was is that people throw them on the ice. It was, it was not a wanton waste issue at that time then either. It was a trash issue. And so it, it became, um, you know, it, it was never a natural resources uh, uh, deal. So even, you know, a littering thing would never affect, uh, you know, in, in the enforcement aspect was, was just different. Um, making them a game fish uh, just seems logical to me. Now, as far as bag limit goes, I'm not sure what Shannon uh, uh, mentioned in, in your earlier interview. Um, but I think that uh, the decision about what that bag limit should be is, is still up in the air. Yeah, and that's, that's what he said. He said that uh, they were still kind of kicking some numbers around with, as far as what they were going to do. They were talking season dates as well. And I think a lot of it came down to, to what you were talking about as well as kind of when, when those fish are in there. But, um, you know, that, that may also end up uh, being kind of a, an open-ended thing. And, and maybe they'll just uh, go ahead and protect the fish with with the uh, with the bag limit, but uh, tell me a little bit. Of this. I mean, if we're going to do this, the main thing is, you know, if we're going to put bag limits out there, that means we're putting a value on the fish, and we feel like this fish is not a rough fish; it's worth doing it. Why are burbot important? Why are burbot important? Well, yeah, you could so ask that same just about any any species. For sure, and. and Ultimately, it's in, for for us. Burbot are are really important in the in the ecosystem for a variety of reasons, ranging from just a member of that fish community to an indicator species for water quality, to uh, a climate potentially a climate indicator species. All these different things that that come into play. Um, but the fact, uh, it, the one of the facts is, is that. I mean, they are a popular game fish across the country. Um, some states don't regulate them, others do. And that, that seems kind of uh, in, inconsistent, uh, uh, an inconsistency that I think we should avoid. I think that, that, you know, my personal preference anyway is for them to be a game fish, um, to actually show the importance of that fish species in the, in the ecosystem. Um, they're native species, so that, you know, elevates them also to, to some extent over some species, let's say, like uh, common carp, which are, are an, an introduced species. Um, I, I, you know, when we get to the idea of rough fish, I think, you know, that's an old, a very old concept that uh, maybe needs to be re-examined in a, in a broader sense even. And because uh, each of the fish species uh, has, has a value in one way, shape or form, whether it's for, uh, you know, uh, limiting the, the, you know, har harvesting and eating uh, uh, other fish species that then creates uh, 
uh, food for another species or whatever, an important piece in the, in the food chain or, uh, or as an indicator of uh, you know, water quality and things like that. There's always something about any particular species that's, that is of value. Rick, you talked about having some gray in your beard and on the block when it comes to burbot and you've, you've studied them, you know, from the time you were, you were a very young man. Um, where do you see the future of burbot? Where do you think we're going the next 10, 20 years when it comes to burbot and, and what are some of the issues maybe that we'll face and, and what do you think, uh, you know, maybe some of the victories around that species will be? Well, I, you know, that, that last one is really hard to say. What are some of the victories that that species... I mean, uh, more people interested in a species will protect that species for a much longer time. Think waterfowl, think, uh, you know, think walleye, I guess, right? Uh, everybody's really interested in walleye. So we put a lot of uh, effort into protecting walleye and to producing walleye. So, you know, the, gaining, the, the, the win for me would be people interested in the fish. Um, now, what's going to happen over the next 10, 20 years or so? Um, you know, that's, that's kind of anybody's guess for sure. But, uh, you know, I think the, the writings on the wall on some marginal, marginal waters, um, they may not disappear, but I think their numbers are going to be lower than they once were. Their growth rates are going to be lower than they once were in waters where it's warmer now. Um, like I said, they, they are a cold water species. So, you know, Malax is, is, is very much an anomaly in that, uh, you know, it's big and windswept and doesn't have any cold water refuge in the wintertime, or I mean, in the summertime. And so uh, the, those fish that, that live in waters similar to that and further south even, um, will have a harder time of it as, uh, as climate changes and, and we're, we're warming. So that's, that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for, for the fish. Uh, um, I think, like I said, more people that are interested, I don't think we're going to have as much of an issue with fishing, especially if we you know, declared a game fish, then all of a sudden we have issues. If we have issues, make some changes to regulations and protect the species. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way it's worked over the, the, the you know, decades uh, in the department and you know, a couple centuries or whatever it is now for Department of uh, Conservation in the old days. Um, so th that's a, that's an important uh, component too. But um, I, I, I think I see a, a continual rise in the interest in the fish. And that's good. You're talking about that rise of interest and how, how that really helps any species. Um, that's kind of something interesting. I think I talked to Shannon about this. I'm not sure if it was after our conversation that was recorded or if it was during the recorded conversation or but uh, you know, with, with everything that happened in the last year with COVID and more and more people getting out on the water, getting outdoors and doing things that maybe they haven't done for a long time. You know, license sales went up this year and it's no surprise or no secret when you go out on the ice right now, there's just more people out there. Um, how do you think that will affect fishing going further with, with just a resurgent in, in these people coming out and, and getting in, engaged into fishing? So, it, there, there's a couple. There's a couple things in there. There's a lot of nuances in in all that fishing effort. Um, one, I think that uh, a lot of the fishing effort, and one of the things that we we postulated, in the recently actually, is that uh, much is because because of COVID, 
you don't have some of the things that that uh, people were able to do before can't do them now fishing is a great outdoor safe activity and so that's becoming uh, uh, even more popular than it than it has been recently um, part of that is probably a blip right it's going to be a, a covid blip because once people are able to do the sports and activities and things like that that they that they want to do, um, I think that, that that will you know happen again. However, um, the, the, the one thing that I also believe, and, and this is this is total you know uh, uh, prognostication on my part, I think that that the resource is setting the hook on a number of new anglers. And, and like you probably know, is once you get hooked on it, it's really hard to give it up. So I think that those anglers are gonna continue and we'll see a slight, a slight rise even post COVID. But the big bump I think is is going to be a blip on the radar and, and it'll probably go away again to some extent. So I, I don't remember what that's called, uh, but uh, it, it, uh, an anomaly. <laughs> yeah, we, we talk about it kind of raising the baseline. Maybe you had a, a le level of casual anglers here. You had this big blip and now the level of ang casual anglers are here. Yeah, those guys are probably going to go back to playing hockey or playing football, whatever it is that they're doing. But they have that gear in the garage now, and maybe instead of going out once every couple of years, now they're going to go out maybe, you know, once a month or something from here out. I my understanding is boat sales has soared this year, and you know you don't invest in a boat for just you know once a year. Uh, you know, there you can you can go fishing different ways from that too. So I, I, I tend to agree. I think that, and that's kind of what I was saying that, that, that baseline hopefully has been shifted a little bit up. That's, that was, that would be what I would guess. Yeah. You drive around your area and check out those uh, lots that usually have fish houses on them. Not many fish houses on those lots right now. They're pretty empty. Well, that too, but you know, that, that one is hard to judge just because of a production standpoint too, but you drive, drive around my area and you look at the lakes on a weekend. Oh my gosh, our, our, uh, we had trout opener two weekends ago, right? And uh, we have three lakes in the county that have uh, uh, four now, but three that have active fisheries. And uh, uh, one's kind of in the middle of nowhere, a little bit of a sleeper, but the other two are pretty well known. And uh, the fishing effort on those lakes was just off the charts. Um, one of them, uh, I think the, the road was so packed that uh, it took a while for some people to get out because they were parked in basically, you know, so far in. So things like that, that uh, kind of suggests that, and, and, and you just drive around, you look at it. I, I live on a lake in, nor in uh, north of Aiken and, and uh, the, the, the crappie fishing hole this spring was, just, or this winter was just packed with, with anglers. It was a, a regular thing. Yeah. Um, a little less with the snow and slush conditions, but uh, but it it certainly was was way more than usual. Yeah, we're definitely seeing the same thing. Rick, was there something you wanted to talk about today that, that I didn't ask you? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think we, we touched on most everything that's, uh, you know, well, okay. So <clears throat> the one thing that we didn't talk about is really their looks, right? I mean, when you look, some, some fish come up and they're just kind of dark olive green and whatever and, and not all that cool. But some of them you pull up are this just gorgeous leopard tiger type of pattern to them. Um, and of course, then with their chin barbel, uh, they're, they're still, uh, you know, they, they just look cool too, right? So, so they look cool. They definitely do. Rick, if, if people want to find out more about Burbit in Minnesota, find out what's going on with them, where can they go? Oh, um, I guess your area supervisor would probably be a, you know, the best uh, place um, to, to check if you are really interested in bourbon and it's very feasible. There's, a, there's areas in the, in the state that, that aren't going to have much, if any kind of fishery for them. Um, uh, but uh, that, that's not a bad spot. Other anglers, just like yourselves, if you're interested in where to go type of thing, um, you guys are probably the best at uh, spilling the beans at, at, at where they where the, where to go to get fish. Um, uh, we, we we like to shotgun things so that we don't get those uh, those spikes at any one fishery. So usually, if you ask us, we'll give you an answer that's uh, got about fifteen or twenty lakes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and, uh, and that's something actually you see a lot of on the internet now too as well. I mean, I follow all kind of the, the popular places to, to find information and you're seeing more and more of that. You know, people don't want to see their, their lakes decimated. And when someone comes and they're asking, hey, where, where can I take someone to go catch crappies or where can I go find perch? Um, there's a lot of, hey, check out the, uh, the creel surveys on the DNR website or or DM me, you know, where maybe someone was, doesn't mind sharing their spot, but they don't want to broadcast it to the world. So uh, I think uh, more and more people kind of want to protect those places. I I I hope so. <laughs> I, it has been uh, interesting to watch the the uh, you know growth of the internet and how it changes the information flow and things like that. Um, we. Uh, we we know spikes are are usually blips. It's the <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> it's the times when when that spike turns into a regular a new plateau that that we as fish managers start to become a little bit more concerned. Blips, no big deal. New plateaus, that's something that raises our eyebrows and uh, and that uh, makes us think a, a little bit more about what's going on. So. Rick, really appreciate your time coming on the show today. It was a pleasure having you and, and talking about bourbon. All right, Chris, thank you. Have a good one. Good luck. Thanks for listening to the Fish House Nation podcast presented by Catch Cover. For more ice fishing content, visit our blog at catchcover.com.